many operas have in the beginning of the opera what's called an overture. And the overture is usually a a short summary of what's going to be contained within the opera. And the the, uh, symphony will uh, surface many of the main themes of the opera that tells the the whole story. So it's it's one of those uh, uh, pieces in an opera that's meant to whet your appetite to uh, foster a desire to hear the rest of the opera. In many ways, John's pro, the prologue to John's gospel is like the overture of an opera. He begins in heightened theological reflection, surfacing all of the main themes that he will touch on throughout the rest of his gospel. Themes of light, life, grace, truth, belief, unbelief, witness, All of these things will be further fleshed out in the rest of the gospel. And uh, because it is so profound and deep, we're going to spend some time in it. So over the next five weeks, we are going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And this morning, we're just going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 and verse 18. We're going to be kind of drawing from different themes within the prologue in each of these sermons. And I hope that it will... Give us a good foundation as we begin to look at the Gospel of John, which is so simple, but yet so profound. And in many ways, what John is answering, the question John is answering in this prologue is, who is the Jesus of John's Gospel? What is his background? I don't know about you, but I I read widely even of secular authors, and often it's very helpful to flip to the back of the book to see what they're about to see kind of their curriculum vitae, right? What do they, where did they grow to school? What, are they, what did they learn? Where, what work have they done in their lives? What's their position? Where are they speaking from? Our experiences color and shape the ways that we interpret the world. And so it's helpful to know someone's background when you begin to read something from them. Well, in many ways, that's what the prologue of John is giving us the background of the historical Jesus who came and dwelt among us. Who is he? And that's what we're answering this morning. So as you are able, please stand with me for our gospel reading, which is found in John chapter 1. It's also printed in your bulletin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this, your word. As we see the excellencies of Christ on display for us, the word, the divine word of God, who came and dwelt among us, who took on flesh so that he could take on our sins. And as we open up this portion of your word, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would understand. For we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. You may be seated. Notice right away that John is making an allusion to the very first book of the Bible, in the beginning. And we can't help, if we're good Bible readers, to think back to what follows in the beginning in Genesis. And what follows it? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. But what does John say? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and then he gives us two qualifiers to define who this Word is. And as we skip down to verse 14, we realize that the Word is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son who came from the Father. The Word is Jesus, born of Mary. The Word was with God and was God. And we're going to look at these three things. We're going to be dealing with verses 1 through 3 and then also including some comments from verse 18. And so we're going to be looking at it under three headings. Jesus is the Word, Jesus is God, and Jesus is the agent of creation. Now the word translated there as word is logos. That's the word in Greek, and scholars have tried to find some background to why John uses this terminology, this phrase, to describe Jesus. Is it Greek philosophy? Is it Philo, a Jewish uh, synthesizer? Uh, is it, uh, it, where did John come up with this term, the word, logos, to describe the divine Jesus, who before he became incarnate, was with God and was indeed God. And I think that scholars look in vain to all those outside sources because we need not look any farther than the Word of God, right? Uh, We noticed already that in the beginning, John is signaling us to look back at Genesis chapter 1. And if you Looked back at Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And you'll notice in the first chapter of Genesis, over and over again, that God said, and then it happens. God spoke the word, and all that is 
came from nothing. It was the power of his word that created everything that has been created. And we're going to talk about that more when we look at verse 3. And Jesus as the agent of creation. But I want, I don't, I, we don't need to search in vain for what this logos is that John is describing because the word is everywhere in scripture. And we read also in um, Proverbs chapter 8 that there's also a tradition, a wisdom tradition. Uh, wisdom is skill and the art of godly living. As we read from Proverbs 8, you'll notice that wisdom is personified as a great lady. And she calls out to the simple to come to her. Right? Wisdom, the, the skill in the art of godly living. We get uh, our word logic is derived from the Greek word logos. It's the same word group. And logic is sort of a reasoned uh, expression of what is right, right? We, and wisdom we might call the logic of creation, discerning the ways of creation and what we might call natural law, judging between what is true and what is false, what is good and what is evil. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. You see, John, looking for terminology to describe the pre-existent Christ before he takes on flesh, looks to the scriptures and finds ready examples. John is just a good Bible reader, and he links the spoken word of God with the word that came and took on flesh and dwelt among us, none other than the Son of God. And the fact that the pre-incarnate Jesus is the Word of God means that Jesus is literally on every page of Scripture. Of course, we don't want to too closely identify Jesus with the words of Scripture, but in a very real sense, when you reject the Word of God, you are rejecting the one who spoke the Word of God. None other than Christ Himself. Not only is the whole of the scriptures about Jesus, but in his pre-incarnate state, he is the word God spoke that brought the world into being, Genesis 1, that broke the cedars in Psalm 29, that is the living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. From Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus is the word of God. And a rejection of the word of God is a rejection of Christ himself. But notice also in verse 1, there are two qualifiers. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was was God. Why two qualifiers? Now, if you were just to do a thought experiment with me, if we removed is God, say we just said, say John just said, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. And we just remove that bit about and is God and was God. What would that do to our theology? Well, then you have John telling us about the word that is with God, that is in the proximity of God. 
But he's not God. He's not identified with God. He's not of the same substance, which we'll talk about in a moment. So without is God, you get a semi-special character who's special enough to be in the presence of God, but is not God himself. Well, if you removed the with God, and you just had in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, he was in the beginning. And you didn't have any with. Well, then the word would be the same as God. And there would be no distinction between the two. John has perfectly crafted a confession of faith to plumb the depths of the Trinity in ways that took us centuries to iron out. These two qualifiers bring out the Trinitarian nature of God and perfectly highlight the unique character of the person of the Son while simultaneously confirming his absolute divinity. The word was with God. So he is a person distinct from the Father. But the word was God shows that he shares equally in the divine substance. Much of the early church debates revolved around our doctrine of Christ, what's called Christology. The the move from the Old Testament Judaism of monotheism, God, our God is one God, the confession from Deuteronomy 6, and moving from uh, Jesus' revelation of God being three in one, three distinct persons in one God, and further complicating things by taking on flesh and being the God-man, uniting in his own person two natures of God and man. So you can imagine the early church spent a lot of time ironing out what exactly scripture teaches about christ and his relationship to the father in 313 the edict of milan was was signed by constantine which prohibited the persecution of christians and allowed for their free exercise somewhere around 319 a priest in alexandria began teaching a subordinationist teaching about the person of christ His name was Arius, and he appears to have held that the Son of God was not eternal, but created before the ages by the Father from nothing as an instrument for the creation of the world. He was therefore not God by nature, but a creature and so susceptible of change. Even though different from all other creatures in being, the one direct creation of God His dignity as Son of God was bestowed on him by the Father on account of his foreseen abiding righteousness. You see, Arius doesn't believe that the Word was God. And he was a popular teacher, and his teaching spread. And it spread throughout the Christian, throughout the empire, the Roman Empire. And it became troubling. And so in 324, Constantine sent delegates to try to make peace and to prevent schism. But Arius' teachings had spread too rapidly. So in 325, the Council of Nicaea was convened of all the bishops in the world to decide this matter of the Son of God. And at that council was a wily deacon, an assistant to the Bishop of Alexandria, 
known as Athanasius. He boldly refuted Arius at the council, defending the deity of the Son of God as begotten from the Father. Only begotten. That is, from the substance of the Father. God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. Of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being. Things in heaven and things on earth. But what we don't usually recite when we confess the creed is the anathemas. These are the negative statements of cursing. These are what you may not believe concerning the teachings about Christ. And this is what the council said. But as for those who say, there was when he was not, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is of a different hypostasis or substance, or is subject to alteration or change, these the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes. So basically what they're saying is if you hold to the teachings that Jesus was created, oh, you may say that Jesus was a special creation of God, made before anything, and in fact the very agent of creation after that, and that God bestowed on him sonship by adopting him, then you are to be cursed. And they held this very strongly because it strikes at the very vitals of who Christ is, of who God is, the very nature of God. And so it, it, it is well for us to have these things, um, to speak with clarity on these issues. Tradition maintains that Constantine insisted that one word be included in the creed, homoousian, meaning consubstantial or of one substance with the Father. This is, of course, drawn straight from the Apostle John here in verse 1. The Son of God, the eternal Word, was with God and He was God. He is of the same substance as the Father, God of God. But at the same time, he is not the Father. He is distinct. He is with God. Without that qualifier, with, there would be no distinction between the Word and God. And without that distinction, you fall into the heresy of modalism, saying that there's really one God, but he exists in different modes. He was once Father, but now Son, and some would say now he's manifest and the Spirit. But that is a heresy as well, because John said the Word was with God. He was distinct from God, but he was very God of very God. And without the qualifier, is God, we would fall into this Arian heresy and believe that the Word is created that had a beginning. And the famous slogan of the Arians is, there was a time when he was not. And we reason from our experience back to God. And sometimes that is very dangerous because we end up imposing our notions of father and son on the Trinity rather than letting the relations of the Trinity inform our relations. You have a poor relationship with your father. You sometimes end up thinking poorly of God the Father. Father in the ancient world was superior to his son in almost every way. 
Arians reasoned that even Jesus said as much in John 14, 28, where he said, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Since the Son submits to the Father, he must be subordinate to him and therefore inferior, and therefore not God in the same way, or so the Arians reasoned. And we find that egalitarians do the same thing. They're trying to use the unity of the Godhead to defend egalitarianism. Both of these are wrong. We must maintain the creator and creature distinction. God is not us. And we should not derive our human anthropology from the nature of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Rather, the word of God is the map, what God has revealed concerning our relationships, and not what he hasn't, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But John teaches here in the prologue the consubstantial nature of the Son of God. He is God, meaning he is consubstantial or of the same substance as the Father. It wasn't until Augustine that the delicate balance between the oneness and the threeness of God was struck. There, Augustine finds the unity of the Godhead and the essence of their substance. The diversity of the three persons was their mutual relations. You see, the Father was the Father because he's in relationship with the Son. And the Son is the Son because he is in relationship with his Father. And, and so it is with the Spirit. And eternally so. Now, is your head spinning? That's okay. That's okay. We're trying to plumb mysterious depths. And we are on safe and sure ground when we stick to the creed. When we stick to what the church has said is true regarding Jesus, the Son of God, who is God of God, light of light, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Do I fully understand what that means? No, I do not. But I confess it as a truth, and I believe it to be true. And the opposite of it has serious implications for our theology. But what also stands out about this is, look with me at verse 18. John ends this prologue by saying, No one has ever seen God the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, there are some translations that say the only Son who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. But the better translations or the better manuscripts say the only God. It matters not because the flow of John's argument is showing us that Jesus has come to make the Father known. The mystery of the Godhead is mysterious, but when Jesus came and he took on flesh, he fully revealed the Father to us. He came for that very purpose. He is the Word made flesh, verse 14, who dwelt among us. The disciples over and over again struggled to understand the unity of the Father and the Son. If you'll remember that dialogue with Philip and Thomas In chapter 14, Philip says this to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. 
And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. John is visibly frustrated. He's telling them, I'm going to go to my Father. And they say, hey, show us the way. We want to go too. Have I been with you so long that you do not realize that I am the Word that was with God, that is God, and God sent me to fully reveal Him to you? And if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And the works that I came to do, these are the Father's works that He gave me. The Son And just as the author of Hebrew also says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to, now notice the word spoke, spoke through his word to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of, of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One commentator says, the son is the exact representation, the embodiment of God as he really is. His being is made manifest in Christ so that to see the son is to see what the father is like. I don't know about you, but if you've ever heard some of the new atheists talk about penal substitutionary atonement being like cosmic child abuse, people get this idea that God the Father is this mean ogre in the sky with a stick, and that any time one of his creatures gets out of line, he wants to whack them. And then Jesus comes along, who is gracious and meek and mild. You know, he has blonde flowing hair and blue eyes. And he's tenderly speaking to everyone. And he so graciously, he takes all of that angry wrath from the Father and he forgives your sin. He's so gracious and merciful. That's not the picture the Bible gives us of God. And it becomes even worse if you grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition. Right? Because then it's not even through Jesus that you want to come to the Father, but you have to go through Mary. She's even more gentle. She's even more meek. But that caricature just does not hold true with what God is saying in his word here. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was in the Father's bosom has made him known. And that word from God is the character of God. That's what it means to be the exact imprint. He is the character of God. He embodies God the Father. So the works that Jesus does... Those are the works that the Father sent him to do. The Son does not have to convince the Father somehow to be gracious to undeserving sinners. Instead, the Father's love is on full display in the sending of his only begotten Son, who is of the same substance with him. 
who has existed for all of eternity in the closest of communion. He sends him to take on flesh so that he can take your sin on himself and you can have his righteousness. If that's not love on full display, then I don't know what love is. Verse 18 makes it clear that the plan and purpose of God was always to make himself known through his son. Jesus is God. But Jesus is also the agent of creation. Look with me at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the Word, distinct from the Father, but fully God. And and as I alluded to, He is also the agent of creation. The Word is the creative agent, and nothing that exists has its being apart from Him. As we read earlier in our responsive reading from Psalm 33, the psalmist says, the psalmist says in verse 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouse. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Although the creation underwent the curse Because of man's sin, it remains under the sovereign control of the Word of God. This Paul brings out in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. He's speaking about Christ and he says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Jesus is shown throughout John's gospel as the agent of creation over and over again when he turns water into wine, when he walks on the water, when he heals the sick and he casts out demons. Jesus is manifesting his sovereign control over creation for everything that exists came through him. And there's nothing that exists that came apart from him. And I take John to mean that he didn't just create a couple proteins and make a little protein soup and then wait around for life to spontaneously Arise out of the chaos. If God wanted to create through evolution, he would have told us that's how he was creating us. But he spoke and everything came into being. That kind of materialistic worldview leads to a culture of death that is so consumed our culture. Survival of the fittest means that abortion... It's not wrong, right? Because this thing is hindering my life and I don't want it, so I should be able to kill it. It's it's in my body and so it should be my choice. 
But when you have been steeped in a materialistic, impersonal creation, then that's the kind of outcome that you will get. Margaret Sanger, the the founder of Planned Parenthood, was a firm proponent in eugenics. She wanted to use abortion to purify the bloodlines, as she thought. We see clearly that this kind of materialistic worldview leads to what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Listen to this in verse 28. Paul is saying that everything about God can be known from creation. Why? Because it testifies to His power. It can be clearly seen, but they don't acknowledge that, and they don't give thanks. And in verse 28 it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. But it sounds like I just read off the newsreel. And that's because our worldview is materialistic and we view the creation as impersonal. But it's not impersonal. God, the Son, the Word created it and He relates to it covenantally. That is, He has come, He has condescended to dwell with us. He made a covenant that relates him intimately with us. It doesn't make him the same as creation. We're not pantheists. We don't worship the creation. The creation draws us to worship the one who created it. The word. But if Jesus is the divine word through which everything that exists came into being, Jesus is also the agent of recreation. Because that initial creation was marred because of sin so that we don't acknowledge God. So that we are bent in on ourselves and we don't give thanks to God. And we respond in all of the ways that Paul says because we run from God. And God all throughout the pages of Scripture, is wooing man. But it's not wooing man up into heaven, but God is making his dwelling place here with us. That's what it means when it says, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled with us. He made his dwelling place with man. And that dwelling place, that close fellowship that covenant relationship was broken by sin and jesus is the agent of recreating that so that we can once again dwell in the presence of god so that we can have intimate fellowship with him by his spirit if jesus can create out of nothing then he can also call dead men out of their tombs then he can also breathe life into those who are dead in their sins and trespasses Jesus is not just the agent of creation, but he's also the agent of recreation. 
I will bring you back time and time again to this question, so what? Why is this important? Why is John telling us this at the beginning? Partly it's because he wants to surface the main themes of the book, but mainly it's because he wants to show you that the gospel that he's about to articulate, the words, the signs, the works that Jesus of Nazareth does are the works of God himself. Since Jesus is none other than the divine word of God who was in the beginning before all things and was with God and was God, then you should pay attention to the God-made flesh incarnate word. Jesus is no ordinary man, and it will be clear on every page that this is true. But I will also not grow tired of driving you back to John's express purpose in writing his gospel. And we talked about this last week. In verse 31 of chapter 20, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, John is articulating the background of the historical Jesus so that you know when he begins his ministry, this is God in the flesh. This is not an ordinary man. And by seeing that, you will believe that he is the Christ, the one promised, the one who would redeem his people from sin. Jesus, the divine word of God and agent of creation, is worthy of your faith, infinitely so. And the miracle of it all is that even faith needed to lay hold of the salvation that Christ offers is itself a gift of the word. Given to those whose ears he opens to hear that recreative word. John holds out the divine word for your contemplation, not merely for the beginning of faith. Not merely so that you might believe, but so that you will continue to believe. So that as you read in the pages of Scripture and you see Jesus, you will be reminded that He was the Word who is with God, who is God. And you will continue to believe. The same Christ who came to earth and took on flesh to save us from sin will come again with great glory and the sword of judgment. And how will He find you on that day? I pray He will find you marveling at the wonder of John's prologue. That the Creator God, who through His Son made all of this, would humble Himself to love me so much that He sent His only Son to make known to me the riches of His love and the sacrifice of His life in my place. May I be found on that, on that day praising the only one able to accomplish that great work. As John also said in the Revelation, Chapter 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. John wrote his prologue so that you can sing that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the Word, the Word which is powerful. The word which has called us out of darkness into light. Who is our life? Who is the word made flesh? The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God. 
Father, we give you thanks for the sending of your son. We're thankful for seeing the very, your very heart, the very character that you reveal to us in Jesus Christ, which is loving and gracious and kind and merciful to undeserving sinners such as us. Father, we can barely express our gratitude in words. We struggle to find the right ones to plumb the depths of how much we owe you, how thankful we truly are. So this morning, we pray that as we contemplate the Lord Jesus Christ, may our faith in him be deepened and strengthened so that we may persevere into the end saying with all of the saints, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Amen and amen. Saints, let's, out of that thanksgiving, respond by singing the hymn that is printed in your bulletin. It's going to be the hymn of the month. We will feast.